Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. Good to have you with us. I'm Kevin DeYoung, the host, and I have with me our special guest, Johnny Gibson, who I'll say more about in just a moment. Just want to thank Crossway for sponsoring Life and Books and Everything and mention today the ESV Men's Study Bible, which released about uh, 10 days ago. And there's always need for another good study Bible. This one has uh, a number of acclaimed scholars and pastors, it says, and lots of notes, thousands of notes, character profiles, biblical facts, daily devotionals, scripture application content. So if you are looking for a men's study Bible for you or for a man in your life or Father's Day or something coming up, check out the ESV Men's Study Bible. And thanks again to Crossway. So I have with me uh, Jonathan. Does anyone call you Jonathan? Uh, only my mother. That's when, yes. I, that's when I'm in trouble. Yeah, when you're in deep trouble. <laughs> yeah. uh, Johnny Gibson, uh, PhD, University of Cambridge, has been a pastor, has taught on both sides of the Atlantic, and currently is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in the Philadelphia area. And we're going to talk about a number of books that he's written. You've you've yet to write a book that I don't like. So keep keep up the, I'm sure you have much higher standards than that, but I do appreciate, uh, appreciate you, appreciate your brother, appreciate the work that you're doing. So thanks for being on the program. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. Always good to talk to you. All right. So uh, start off, tell us, tell us a little bit about your, yourself. You're not from Philadelphia, I don't think. Where are you from? How did you come to this uh, lovely country of ours? Yeah, I hail from Texas. <laughs> Very good. As you can hear from the accent. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland. I uh, was raised there. I was actually brought up as a missionary kid in Tanzania, East oh, Africa. Okay. My parents were missionaries with MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Uh, but we went back when I was seven to Northern Ireland. There's three boys in our family, so to give us all a, an education back home. And... Um, yeah, I became a, I was raised in a Christian family. Um, I think I became a Christian in my a few years after we returned from Africa. I, I started to really understand and believe the gospel, having heard it from my parents and also from the church that we were in. Um, and then I did a gap year in South Africa, uh, 96 to 97, and came across a Reformed Baptist pastor who introduced me to Reformed theology. I was sort of brought up in a uh, Christian Brethren Assembly that was dispensational and mm. um, sort of Calminian, maybe, you know. <laughs> um, but it was that pastor who really sort of put me on to Reformed theology. Uh, studied to be a physical therapist or physiotherapist, as we call it back in the UK. Oh, I've forgotten um, that part. Yeah, I worked for three and a half years in a hospital and then went off to Moore College in Sydney to study for a theology and service and ministry. I uh, met my wife, Jackie, who's a Sydney girl. We married and then went to Cambridge for a PhD. And then it was in Cambridge, I came out of the closet as a Presbyterian. <laughs> and I, I think I'd been a closet Presbyterian for a while. And uh, Was that a safe place to do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was at Eden Baptist, actually, at the time. Right. <laughs> so not, not so safe. That wasn't safe, but yeah. you, you found Ian Hamilton, or he found you, yeah. or something. Yeah, a bit of both, yeah. And then uh, 
Ian asked me to be his associate minister for a couple of years. So, yeah, I'm ordained with the IPC, the International Presbyterian Church in the UK. Served there as a minister for a couple of years and then uh, came here to Westminster for my sins. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I've been here six years. I'm into my sixth year. can't believe it. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. I don't know if we want... You're, is it the fact that once your sins are atoned for, then you can go back to Ireland, or this is the—I don't know what, well, what's the what's what's the punishment here or there? There, I, I had there. to flee. You know, I was uh-huh. in trouble. Had to get out. You know. Yeah. So uh, before we get to some some books, uh, tell a little bit. So it's very confusing. Americans are confused about a lot of things, obviously, and the United Kingdom is confusing to us. Are you one country? Are you two? Are you four? And uh, the, the church scene, and I've traveled around a, a bit, I'm certainly not an expert, but it strikes me that the, the church scene in Northern Ireland versus Scotland versus England, I don't have as much, uh, just haven't had the opportunity to have as many connections in Wales, but how would you describe the difference in the state of the church and what's going on with the gospel and do you see, are any of those places more similar or dissimilar to what you see in the United States? Um, yeah, so United King is made up of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And right. uh, I'd say the mainland, as we call it in Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, very pagan, very low church attendance these days. Um, but in Northern Ireland, I mean, I, I last lived there in 2005, so I am speaking with a bit of distance now and probably aren't up to date on the recent. But you probably have family there and go back there. and. Yeah, actually, my parents now moved to Scotland to be near oh. David. So, uh, so okay. we, I have, you know, uncles and aunts and cousins. But yeah, so it's been a while. But um, Northern Ireland's like a Bible belt within the United Kingdom. So there's a church, evangelical church in every street corner at least certainly when I was growing up. And generally, you know, the Protestant churches are orthodox, committed to preaching the gospel. Um, And I think something like 10% of people in Northern Ireland would claim to be evangelical Christian, and perhaps it's even more than that. So it's got quite a strong Christian influence. In fact, it it did resist... um, uh, passing a same-sex marriage bill or abortion right up until 2020. It was during yeah. COVID that the British government took advantage of the COVID emergency situation when the British government wasn't meeting and they pushed through the same-sex mm-hmm. marriage bill. So it, it was a little sort of uh, conservative en- enclave within the United Kingdom resisting some of the cultural progressive things that were going on elsewhere. So it's it's quite a unique little country in that regard. The Republic of Ireland uh, has got the least number of evangelical churches per square mile uh, in Europe, I believe. And Northern Ireland has the most evangelical Mm -hmm. churches per square mile in Europe. So it's, yeah, it's quite a contrast. But you would say you're Irish. And Northern Ireland, you know, an an Ulsterman doesn't say he's British. No, the other way around. An an Ulsterman would say say he's he's British, British, not Irish. Yeah, and I'd say I'm Northern Irish. <laughs> Northern Irish. I'm not, I'm so not you, English. You, I'm well, that's for sure. And you not wear English. orange on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm British, not English, but Northern Irish. All right. But not, Ar- but not Irish. But not Irish. <laughs> and the Irish for don't you. want to claim you for Ireland either. 
Yeah, yeah, it's quite complex. Uh, but those of us who live there know exactly what we're talking about. But the rest of the, the world don't really know. Yeah. Well, I, I have really, I mean, it's a few times and for just a, a short period at a time, but I've loved the trips that I've had to to Belfast. And once I think once I even saw the sun and that was really encouraging yeah. for a couple of hours. That's a big but day for us. Yeah. yeah, that's a good summer. Yeah, but it's very green. My, my sense, I felt like, uh, and obviously as a Presbyterian, you love Scotland, but Scotland has felt the most post-Christian to me. Mm. England, of course, lots of pagans in, in England, but with, you know, there's still Church of England gives a certain veneer, and there are a number of good evangelical uh, Anglican churches and free churches, and, you know, mm -hmm. the size of a man's fist, Presbyterian work going on there. No Northern Ireland feels a little bit like, huh, there are, there are Christians uh, around, and you don't have to just go under a rock to find them. They're actually, but I'm sure you would say there's there's lots of the, the same secularization that's happening in any Western country is happening in Northern Ireland. Yes, it is, and you know there there was obviously the push for same sex marriage, which kept being defeated in the the Parliament at West at um, Stormont. But then, as I said, it was pushed through. So there was definitely a, a, a part of the community and society were pushing for it. Um, but the majority would still be quite conservative on things like that. Um, and, yeah. and the mainline Presbyterian Church has has gotten a little more conservative, would you say, over the last decade or two? I, I would say so. I have some friends there, Michael McLennan, Marty yeah. Kyan. And um, I would say it Again, I wasn't brought up Presbyterian, so I'm sort of speaking from a position of ignorance, really. But uh, listening to those guys and some other friends, I would say the conservatives have now um, been able to uh, influence the college, Union Theological College, right. increasingly. Stafford Carson was yeah. the most recent president. He used to work here at Westminster, and he really helped build that up into a really good, strong evangelical faculty. And uh, I think they're doing really well now. And so, yeah, it, it's an interesting denomination in that it, it had a heresy trial in the late 1920s that didn't go the way of the conservatives. Some people left, eight churches left to form the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Ireland, the EPCI. Mm -hmm. And to this day, the EPCI have eight churches or nine or ten churches. So they, they haven't really ever grown. They came out about the same time Machen came out. Okay. Over here, and what was interesting, Machen wrote to some of the, the the ministers who were leaving, saying, "You know, you're you're doing the right thing. It's great." And it was just it's just interesting. Um, history does repeat itself, but each country and culture is quite unique. And I think the the history there with the Presbyterian Church has been that the evangelicals who stayed within it played the long game, and in a sense of actually, I think yeah. recovered. The denomination now it still has some issues here and there. I'm sure, still some elements of nominalism. Um, they uh, passed women ordination, I think, back in the 80s, but I don't think there's a lot of women actually come through for ordination. I think Stafford said when he was there, they didn't have any women yeah. come through union for ordination, which is yeah. quite remarkable. Yeah, and you know, I think that to answer your question in a in in short. In what was it, two thousand and 
18, I think the church, the Presbyterian Church of Ireland made a decision to cut ties, 400 year ties with the Church of Scotland over mm-hmm. the same sex marriage issue. And uh, so they took a really bold stance. They lost their accreditation with Queen's University as a result. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think that's that shows you how conservative they are to this day to make a stand like that. That's great. Uh, well, one last geopolitical question, a very uh, American-centric question. Since you married an Aussie, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, and you, you're from Northern Ireland, and you have family in Scotland, and you studied in England, and now you've been in the United States. So what, what, what's the good, bad, or ugly? What, what, what do we who've grown up here not see, good, bad, or otherwise, about the church situation in America that someone coming from the outside can see more clearly? Wow. I mean, that's like asking somebody to comment on their wallpaper I know. in their well, house. Well, just to be, to be fair, whenever I've gone, that's yeah. always like the first question. Hey, tell yeah. us, you've been in Belfast for four days. <laughs> what do you, th- you know, what do we need to know? What do you see? So it's yeah. a, it's a very self regarding question, but uh, yeah. you have probably some good insight. Yeah. So on the positive side, Jackie and I really like the church's very bold stance on uh, against abortion, pro-life, you know, stance that the church uh, has here. I think it's fantastic. In the UK, I don't think we have that as much. And I think it's a real pity. I think we could be bolder and more courageous. Um so I quite like that. I, I quite like that you have your own radio stations, your own Christian schools. You know, Christians here do their own thing. If they don't like the secular school, they'll start right. a school. Whereas yeah. in the UK, probably because the history of the Church of England with, you know, they were church schools and they had Christian elements to it. Even mm-hmm. some still have remnants of that. There hasn't been that feel for the need to do it. And yet I, I really like that idea of starting Christian schools, Christian colleges, liberal art colleges that are Christian. So we actually really like that aspect. Other people in the UK or Australia think, oh, that's the polarization in America. That's the problem. Whereas I, I think, no, if if you think Jesus is Lord of the whole of life, then why mm-hmm. why would you not start a Christian school? Yeah. Um, so we, we like that aspect. Um Again, it depends which church you're in and, you know, which denomination you're connected to over here. But I think that um, the danger with that, having your Christian school, Christian college, is, of, uh, you know, how much do you mingle with pagans, really? How, how right. much contact do you have with the non-Christian? I think in the UK, we churches, because we're surrounded by so much secular culture, we just have more contact with non-Christians and we're maybe more frequently thinking about how to do evangelism. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the States uh, here, I think, and again, it depends which denomination and church, et cetera, but I think it can become quite insular and, you know, inward focused. Um, yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, yeah. if you have anything else you want to say before the end of a podcast, <laughs> feel free. You can, you know, you can always fly back to Northern Ireland if, if COVID will let you. Yeah. So uh, we're uh, talk about some of your books. We'll get to some of your more recent ones, but I want to go back and talk about the the big book that you and your brother edited on. What? Wh- why did you want to do a big book on limited atonement from heaven? He came and sought her. What was? Uh, when did that come about? What was the impetus? Are you doing all five points? 
Yeah, so back in oh eight, two thousand and eight, I was oh, set. Eight. Oh eight. Oh eight. I like that. I, yeah. I was set a uh, paper at Moore College on limited atonement, and at the time at Moore College, I would have said the majority of faculty were sort of four pointers or six pointers, depending depend what you think of the five <laughs> points, and and so they were sort of Amaraldian or hypothetical universalists, right? Um, and Bront Knox, who's the principal in the 70s and 80s, very influential, was very anti-limited atonement. So there was that atmosphere around the college at the time. Anyway, I wrote a paper on it. And as I was studying for the paper, I thought, you know, there's nothing contemporary that sort of puts all the historical, biblical, theological arguments all together. You have to sort of go and get the theological in this book and the historical over here and the biblical over here. And so I just said to my brother when he was out for my wedding, I said, you know, I think there's a niche for a little book here, a little book. A little book, yeah, a wee book, no. <laughs> a wee book. And uh, he said, well, why don't you put together a proposal? I asked him to edit it with me. He said no. And then uh, I twisted it as his arm eventually. So that's how it sort of came about through an essay that was set at uh, a theological college. And then it sort of grew from there. And uh uh, you, you now see what it is, what is it, 23 chapters or something yeah. from historical, biblical, theological, pastoral perspective. It took six years to um, finally produce and get it in print. But um, we're very glad with the final product. And then, yes, uh, in for some strange, stupid reason, I decided let's do four more. So um, they're all in the pipeline, and we are very close to getting the final manuscript for um, the one on total depravity. So each of them is going to be uh, a line from a hymn, like oh, from yeah, heaven good. he came and sought her. So the next one's going to be, Lord willing, uh, ruined sinners to reclaim human corruption in historical, biblical, theological, pastoral perspective. Um, chosen not for good in me, unconditional election. Um Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, irresistible grace, and safe in the arms of sovereign love on oh, pers perseverance, preservation of the saints. So, I mean, it's been a long couple of years and uh, edited projects are, uh, as somebody put it to me, like herding cats. And, uh, oh, they're horrible. I, I, yeah. and, and I don't, I've done just a couple and then I end up, I have a couple more that I'm doing and it's yeah. you know no no offense to the people who are doing but every time i've done one i thought this was horrible please never do this again i i should have would have been easier to just write the book yeah i i've actually i'm pretty sure this will be the last edited volumes i ever do it's um yeah and you know they're they're your labor of love as an editor aren't they they're what you're interested in and not right. often exactly what the contributors are they 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 do a great job they yeah. put the work in but it's not their first love. It's not where their labor is. And so you're, you know, you're having to ask them to write it in their spare time, basically, and they don't have a lot of spare time. No, almost nobody turns in things early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're always asking. So th thine eye diffuse a quickening ray on irresistible grace from the Wesley hymn. But don't you think Wesley didn't mean that like we want him to mean it when we sing the song? I think he means it now in glory. He means it now. He's <laughs> he's had a very he's, good uh, seminar. Yes, and he's all squared away. So his his current authorial intent. Yes, but but he probably meant provenient grace. You think? 
yes, maybe. But um, I remember Packer in his book "Among God's Giants" on the Puritans. Mm -hmm. He has a he quotes that part of the hymn, and he says, "Where is thine Arminianism now, friend?" <laughs> you know, because it it is such a Calvinistic her a phrase right. isn't it yeah. thine eye diffused a quickening ray the dungeon filled with light i woke the chains fell off you know it, it's hard to see that as just provenient grace yeah right hey I, i'm yeah. i'm i'm with you and yeah i love the hymn and, and we sing it so tell us about uh you and your brother who's a, a pastor in scotland you guys have a reputation for being what's a good word uh crazy Funny, troublesome, troublesome, troublesome <laughs> irksome, um, but in, but in a good impish. I don't know what uh, is this a nor is this a Belfast thing? Uh, it's, is this just a Gibson a, boy thing? It's probably an Ulster thing, yeah. Oh, an, an Ulster, Ulster thing, yeah. And and David's still like that, even though he's you know he's, has to be a, a proper Presbyterian there in Scotland. Yeah, he's probably the least Northern Irish. There's uh, we have a younger brother, Alistair, yeah. who, who lives in South of Spain. I'm probably the most uh, nostalgic and sort of uh, loyal to the homeland than the other two brothers. But uh, did you watch the Kenneth Branagh movie? I have not yet, Jackie. I and haven't I are, either, but I hear people yeah. rave about it. But yeah, Jackie and I are sort of trying to find a night where we can actually watch it in peace, but uh, not fall asleep during it. <laughs> um, but I hear it's very good, and I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm annoyed I missed it when it was in the cinema because I'd love to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so w what are you teaching at Westminster? Because you're not you're not teaching systematic theology, but you're doing these you doing these five points of Calvinism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I teach Old Testament. So I teach Hebrew three. Uh, we go through Jonah. Um, I teach advanced Ph.D. classes on Hebrew discourse analysis and poetry where we went through Lamentations and some of the Psalms or Psalms, as you say the here. Psalms. Yeah, that's Sam. He's a good the Hebrews pronounce the Hebrews pronounce Sam, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what else do I teach? Old Testament history one and two. So I go from Genesis. My OTHT one class is Genesis one to eleven. That's as far as I get. <laughs> and then my OTHT two class is Genesis twelve through to Ezra Nehemiah. So we we speed up eventually. <laughs> so what am I? What, what have I been missing in life? I had to do discourse analysis in seminary, and it cl clicked with some people, and it just unlocked the treasures of God's word. Mm -hmm. And for me, it it just felt like this is just somebody's system that I'm having to find the right words for and the right sort of. And I'd like to think I I do the legwork of it intuitively, but sell me on discourse analysis. So you haven't really preached, Kevin, until you've done this course. Analysis. Well, that's true. So I'm, the, I'm not really sure years. what I'm doing in the ministry. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, yeah, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, isn't there? So for me, it just gets you below the skin of the text of the English, you know, and uh, there's different ways to do it. I have my own sort of method here. And um, all I want is to encourage students to get into the original language and see things. The two analogies I use is uh, reading uh, the Bible in the in in the original language. It's um, we all we always read in a second language more slowly and carefully because yeah. it's our it's a second language, and so you slow down. So I talk about it being like watching the, the, the sports bowl in high definition in slow motion. 
you, you know, you watch the touchdown from all the different angles. It's slow motion. And that's what it's like, you know, doing a discourse analysis, uh, or at least at least reading in the original language is like that. And then doing a discourse analysis, I, I use the illustration of it's like doing an X-ray on a text mm-hmm. or, or putting the text into an MRI scanner. You know, when I was a physical therapist, a patient would come to me and tell me they had pain in their elbow and I would be able to palpate it and sort of try to work out what was wrong. But if they handed me their MRI scan, I could see straight away where the inflammation was, where the issue was located, uh, because I was getting in under the skin and seeing from different dimensions and angles what was going on. And I think that's what a discourse analysis does. You're looking no longer at the words, you're looking you're zooming out from words and phrases to clauses and sentences mm-hmm. and asking how do these relate semantically, logically to each other. And I think that's where you start to see the skeletal outline of a text. And for me, it helps you then formulate your points quicker. You start to see, oh, these four verses belong together. That can be my first point. These next five verses belong together. That's my second point. So that's what I've felt. It's like a skeletal X-ray MRI scan on a text that actually sort of unfolds it for me. And just to translate, skeletal is is what you're saying. <laughs> skeletal, yes. Yeah, yeah, skeletal. No, that's yeah. good. Uh, well, that that makes sense, and I totally agree. I I will say that to students often that the big advantage. Oh, there's lots of advantages of learning the original languages. I'm a big proponent of it it just forces you to slow down and mm-hmm. just read more slowly, more carefully. I know John Piper loves arcing, which has some similarities mm-hmm. to discourse analysis and he does his thing and look at the book and he, he finds it really helpful. So do other people. I, I've just, it, it's, it's never registered with me, but I'm glad people like you are doing discourse analysis. And I think what you said is absolutely true for pastors out there, anyone just wanting to, to get the depths of what the Bible's teaching, just whatever sort of mechanism is going to force you to slow down. And, and maybe some people do a lot of it intuitively, but some people, mm-hmm. many don't just to look at, okay, what is this connection? How does it, because we, we, we don't read well, and we certainly mm-hmm. don't read well anymore. We're all used to just reading little snippets and we mm-hmm. skim. And even sometimes seminaries can enforce bad, reinforce bad habits because professors like us, we assign, everyone assigns so much, you just read through things really quickly. And then mm-hmm. when you get to the Bible, no, you want to slow down and ask a lot of hard questions. What is this metaphor doing? And is this parallelism saying exactly the same thing in this Hebrew mm-hmm. poetry, or they're trying to yeah. say something slightly different? So those are the benefits of whatever sort of tools you use. Yeah. So I was preaching on Psalm 23 last week at chapel and, uh, you know, the opening verse, which we all know so well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So it's Hebrew parallelism. And the question is, how does parallel line B relate to parallel line A? So how does I shall not want relate to the Lord is my shepherd? And it's a synthetic, consequential parallelism. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Now, if you don't have those categories in mind, you sort of just pass over that opening verse but actually, the whole psalm is that verse, and everything else after it is just unpacking that one verse. And so it was doing the discourse analysis and the parallelism in that case that really helped me 
it sort of unlocked the psalm for me where I realized actually the whole psalm's about psalm hmm. verse, verse one. And if I can start there, then I can unpack my points from that opening verse. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? It means he leads me beside still waters. What does it mean that I shall not want? It means that when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. And how many of those categories in that skeletal work do you show in the pulpit? Are you are you giving, and maybe it's different if you were speaking at a seminary chapel, but are you giving those technical terms? Uh, in the seminary chapel, all I said was that, you know, the second line of verse one relates to the first as its consequence. And I, I, spoke, I spoke about the parallelism. These are parallel lines. And, you know, I think a, a well-informed congregation can cope with that. I don't, yeah. I wouldn't get more technical than that. Um, there's also a lovely alliteration in Psalm 23 of uh, the Ra, the, the evil, for I will fear no evil, Reshayan. Well, the, the first, the, the, the word for shepherd in verse one is Roe, Reshayan, Hey. And so you have this lovely alliteration for every Ra we ever face, we have a Roe, we have mm. a shepherd. For every mm -hmm. evil, there's a shepherd. And that just that co that combined word alliteration gave me a lovely application in the sermon. So you know, I, I sort of had said, "Who would have thought that from alliteration there is application?" You know, yeah. <laughs> that's good. So, that's good. Yeah. Can, can I ask you? And hopefully not. Well, maybe I want to get you in trouble. I don't know. But you teach Old Testament, and we've talked a little bit before. Uh, so as you teach Old Testament. What are you thinking about the days of creation? Are you becoming more and more, and maybe you already were convinced of traditional seven, 24-hour day creation? How do you see that as important? And what's brought you to that firmer conviction? Yeah, I was brought up with that view. I then shifted towards <laughs> a bit more of a day-age analogical view at one point, And then I came out of more not because they taught literal days, but just I came out actually more convinced of literal days the more I looked at it. It was it was getting into the Hebrew, to be honest, mm -hmm. and seeing that it's not poetry. At best, it's highly stylized prose, right. but it's not poetry, so it's no parallelism and symbolism in that sense. And yeah, and then I've, it's one of the things I teach here. I teach the, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 to 3 in my uh, OTHD 1 class, and I go through it in great detail. I've become even more convinced of it, yeah. And then there's the history of interpretation. The anti-Nicene fathers, Nicene, post-Nicene, medieval period. The only exceptions are that I find are Augustine, Origen, and Anselm, and everyone else's ordinary days. And then you get to the Reformation, without exception, ordinary days, post-Reformation, ordinary days then a little thing called the enlightenment happens just yeah. with a small e and and then you have this proliferation of different interpretations and i guess my question to people who don't hold to the traditional ordinary days view is so did god did god allow the church to be in the dark for 1800 years over what the true meaning of the first chapter of the bible was um, you know, do we need the, you know, was it Meredith Klein who's finally, finally unlocked the opening chapter of the Bible? <laughs> or or actually is Klein a bit off because actually the church has been interpreting it this way for 1800 years, you know? So the history of interpretation is also, I think, a powerful 
yeah. uh, reason for me to actually hold to the traditional view. But for me, the primary thing is the exegesis of the Hebrew. It, it's hard to read it any other way. I, I was taught by my doctor, Vader, in Cambridge. My supervisor was R.P. Gordon, lovely Christian man, evangelical. And he taught Genesis 1 to 11. I went to his class and um, he he's not a young earther. He's not a six day ordinary days guy. But he said at one point in class, he said, now let's not have any of this silly nonsense about the days meaning anything other than an ordinary day in the text. So he and just, but he but just he doesn't, he just doesn't believe it. He, but it's he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't believe it happened like that, but he believes oh, okay. that's, that that's what the text says, that it, it's talking about ordinary days. And if you try and lengthen the days to these indefinite periods of time, it doesn't make sense with the ordinal numbers, first, second, third, fourth, etc. And yeah, and, you know, James Barr, Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford, said the same. It, what's very interesting in my study is that um, post-Enlightenment, the higher critical scholars, the German scholars, Fellhausen, um, Gunkel, Von Rad, they all read the days as ordinary days. They, they don't actually go with all these alternative views. They, they just right. say it, it can't mean anything else than an ordinary day. And then they're day. happy to say, but yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't believe that. Yeah, it, it didn't happen like that, but that's, right. what, that's the way the Jews yeah. understood it to have happened. So I think um, when you see the history of interpretation, even among higher critical scholars, you know, it's hard. It, James Barr uh, famously said, the only people who have pro uh, have a problem with the Hebrew of Genesis 1 are evangelicals. <laughs> he said the, the liberals and the fundamentalists all agree that it's six ordinary days. The, the liberals don't believe it happened like that. Right. The fundamentalists believe it says it and it happened like that. And he says it's the evangelicals who don't know what to do with these days. I thought that's yeah. an interesting comment. Well, there is, and there's some parallels with issues of gender roles or sexuality, because the further left you get on, say, the question of homosexuality, some of those scholars will say, well, obviously Paul meant to say that all types of homosexuality were sinful. You, mm -hmm. you, just, you can't rescue him from that. They're perfectly fine to say that's what Paul says, and they'll just say, well, Paul was wrong or Paul was a bigot according to his first century understanding or whatever. Hmm. And conservative evangelicals or whatever label we are will say that. And it's the people in the middle that want to say, well, I I want to I want to be true to the Bible, but I don't want the Bible to say what I don't like it to say. There is sometimes something refreshing the uh the the scholars that are so far removed from feeling the authority of God's word. Now that's a huge problem. But sometimes they'll be more honest with the text because, yeah, mm -hmm. there it is. I'm not trying to find a way to like it or not. It's just there, and that's what it is, and we should be honest about it. Yeah, I, I think so. And for me, it, you asked me why do I want to teach it like that? Well, A, because I think that's what the text says. But also, I think it sets your disposition towards Scripture from the very first chapter of the Bible. Like, I'm going to take this book seriously right from you know, the first chapter. And it's not like, uh, I want to be careful here. It's not like those who hold alternative views right. aren't aren't taking the Bible seriously from the first chapter, but they end up with a hermeneutic that's overly complex in order to get to their interpretation of the days. So the other way I think about it is, if I handed Genesis 1, handed a Bible to a nine-year-old, 
to my son who's nine. I said, Ben, read that. Tell me, tell me what Genesis chapter one says. He, I'm pretty sure he'd say, well, it says that God made the world in six days. And I say to him, well, what are those days? And he, I think any nine-year-old would say they're just ordinary days. But can you imagine me saying, no, well, look, you're going to have to wait till you're about 16. And then I'm going to explain to you this thing called the literary framework where day one matches day four, day, four and day two and five and three and six. And, you know, and when you're a bit older, I'll explain to you actually how this passage, what it really means. And these aren't literal days they're ordinary days. Uh, they're literary days. And Exodus 20, looking back on Genesis 1, it's, it's not actually saying it the way you initially think it says it. And, and I just think it's a bit strange that a child couldn't read Genesis 1 and actually understand it properly until they're older and have this more sophisticated, complex hermeneutic that actually reads the text in a very different way than the way you would read it the first time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And I've been preaching through Genesis for over two years now. I'm on Genesis mm. 39 this next Sunday. And you, you know this, but you, you experience it, especially if you're slowly preaching through the text or teaching through the text. Mm that for for understandable reasons we set apart genesis 1 through 11 and you might do a class at genesis 1 through it is a unit in a way and yet it's so clearly tied from tara's genealogy to abraham over to chapter 12 there's there's no rational way for saying well this is some kind of mytho poetic mm-hmm. you know prehistory that the author, Moses, didn't mean for us to take seriously in the same way. Chapter 12, we sort of come down, and now we're right here on planet Earth, and this was all something beforehand, which every they would have understood was, but there's nothing. In fact, there's so much in the text, all of the Toledotes, the 10, mm-hmm. these are the generations of, uh, I mean, I've just loved preaching through Genesis, because every Sunday you're, you're showing connections. You see how this is... Mm-hmm a connection to chapter four. And this is repeating the Abraham story in the Isaac cycle. It's a, it's an amazing piece, even if it weren't inspired, an intricate literary work that's connected and interconnected from start to finish. And I think that's really important for the preacher, lest we set aside one through 11 as something very different from 12 through 50. Yeah, no, very much so. The genre doesn't change at all from Genesis 1-1 right through, as you said, from 11 to 12, chapter 11 to 12, doesn't change at all. And also, as you say, it sets the theological foundation for the rest of the book. I also talk about how the protology, the soteriology maps onto the protology. So on all the alternative views of creation, I don't think that those positions can give a reasoned argument for the or the creation of the ordinary day or the ordinary week. Mm-hmm. The or- ordinary day and the ordinary week just seem to pop up in the history in Genesis out of nowhere. If you, if you don't believe that it actually was a normal day in the beginning, the question is, when did the normal day begin? And therefore, when did the normal week begin? But you think about Genesis 17, uh, God says to Abraham, circumcise your son on the eighth day. Well, that's soteriology mapping onto protology. The eighth day is the first day of a new week. Mm-hmm. So it symbolizes new creation, new beginning. But the question is, when did the week begin if it didn't 
begin in Genesis 1. And yet the whole of redemptive history is, is actually structured on the ordinary day and ordinary week. So Jesus dies on a Friday, the last day of the week, he sleeps through the Sabbath, and he rises on the eighth day, the first day of a new week. So it's so rich when yeah. you actually see how the protologies serving as the foundation for the soteriology. And I think you miss all of that if you sort of go into these uh, alternative views of the days of creation. And th that first of the new week, and I think that's the Greek, is the, the one of the Sabbath or the one the, the week plus one. I think there's mm -hmm. a deliberate reckoning there, even in the Greek, of how we're to read this Sunday that we're thinking of a new creation. That's just that's not mm -hmm. something that some seminary professor came up with. That's, that's suggested there by the Greek. And of course, you trace through what you said, Genesis 17, circumcised on the eighth day, eight being this number of new birth, regeneration, how many people are in the ark, saved eight people mm -hmm. in the ark. It's really rich, and it all goes back to Genesis. I, I want to, this is a good segue, because you talked about kids, and I haven't gotten to the books that I actually told you I was, I was bringing you on here <laughs> to talk about. But I do want to talk about your your book the moon is always round which is a very touching book and it's a simple but brilliant metaphor for god's goodness and god's providence tell us what that metaphor means and why you wrote the book out of a very real poignant painful experience for your own family so when Ben was <clears throat> about three, we, we were living in Cambridge. It was me, Jackie and Ben. And uh, he loved to look up at the moon at night. So we would always hold him up at the window and look for the moon and say, what shape is the moon, Ben? He'd say, it's a crescent moon, half moon, three quarter moon. And then I'd say, what shape is the moon always? And he would say, "It's the moon is always round. I taught him to say that. And then I'd say, what does that mean? And he would say, God is always good. And so I was trying to teach him that, you know, even when you can't see the whole of the moon, the moon's always round, even when you can't understand all of God's goodness in a certain situation in life, God is always good. But little did I know that six months later, it would be quite providential because we were expecting our daughter, Layla, and uh, she was due on the Lord's Day, 20th of March, 2016. But on the Lord's Day of the 13th of March, the week before, 39 weeks in the womb, as Jackie and I slept on that Sabbath evening on the Lord's Day, uh, she departed this earth. And the next day woke up, uh, we woke up and Jackie said, there's something not right. Mm. And so we went to the hospital and had the scan and confirmed that there was no heartbeat. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, our world fell apart in a sense. The bottom of our world gave way that day. We had always heard of these situations of a, death of late term in a womb and stillbirth but wow we just all of a sudden mm -hmm. were thrust into it Layla was stillborn four days later on St. Patrick's Day 17th of March which today to this day we call St. Layla's Day in our mm -hmm. home yeah and uh, we go out we celebrate her life on that day but we brought Ben to the hospital to meet her and uh, we spent the afternoon with her and I drove him home that night in the car and Jackie was with Layla and I was going back later that night. And uh, in the car out of nowhere, he's three and a half. And he says to me from the back seat, Daddy, will mommy ever grow a baby that wakes up? Mm. 
because mm. he'd, he'd held Layla. He saw that she was just very still, eyes closed. And I said, uh, Ben, I don't know, but let's pray that she does. And then he said, um, why isn't Layla coming home? And I said, well, because Jesus called her name and she went to him. And he said, after she's been with Jesus for a few days, will she come <laughs> to us? And I said, no, Ben, when you're with Jesus, you don't want to go anywhere else. Yeah. And then he said, does she not like us? And I said, no, she does like us. She just likes Jesus more. I said, we're going to have to go to them one day. Um, she's not coming back to us. We'll go to her one day. And they said, Daddy, why isn't she coming home? He was sort of just confused. And I said, Ben, I, I don't really know why. But I said, do you remember the moon? what shape is the moon Ben? and he said the moon is always round and I said what does that mean he said God is always good and I said you know tonight Ben it's hard to see the moon at all really mm -hmm. but we've got to remember that God is good and he has his reason why Layla's gone to heaven and then I put him to bed left him with a friend and uh, I went out and I thought let me actually look for the moon tonight <laughs> and there it was a, a, a half moon and it sort of captured for me that night what exactly we're feeling. It was actually quite a joyful day to meet Layla, nine months expectation. Mm -hmm. Got to meet her, hold her. She was beautiful, full head of black hair. Looked just like Ben when he was born, but all the feminine touches. And, uh, you know, there was we could see God's goodness in giving us a daughter. We got to meet her, name her. But then there was this other half of the moon I couldn't see. Yeah. And, and that just struck me. And... I couldn't believe the profound conversation I'd had with Ben in the car. So I, in the days after her um, stillbirth, I uh, wrote it on my phone. And I thought, you know, one day I want to write this up somehow. I didn't know in what context, but I just wrote it on my phone. And um, <clears throat> then when I was, came to America about a year after her death, I was procrastinating one night late, trying to prepare an Old Testament lecture. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I just decided to start writing this kid's story. I thought I'm going to write a kid's story about it. So that's that's how it began. And then a friend, uh, Nate Morganlock, helped me with the structure of it. He said, why don't you change the content to be from Ben's perspective, not 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 a third-person narrator's perspective. So that's what he did. And he said, put the refrain, the moon is always mm -hmm. round, which I had in there a few places. He said, put that in on every page. And I thought, that's, a, that's actually very helpful. So... Hence was born the book, The Moon is Always Round. And um, at her funeral, Ian Hamilton, we held a full funeral for her. And at her funeral, Ian Hamilton had this throwaway line where he said, hers, Layla's, was a glorious testimony. She pointed us all to God. She pointed us all to another world. Hmm. And then he had this throwaway line where he said, Layla the Evangelist. Hmm. And that's what we call her, Layla the Evangelist. And, you know, we, we hear quite often throughout the year letters, emails from people who have been blessed by that book, who have sadly had similar experiences. And we just always think Layla the Evangelist, she being dead yet speaks. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I encourage everyone to get, I was just talking to, Mark De Mark Dever earlier this morning, heading out to T4G, he said, please uh, give my love to Johnny and tell him that I just handed out more copies yesterday at church of The Moon is Always Round. Right. So well, we, we have it in our book 
table as well. I, you, you had no, you didn't know there was sometimes parents know oh, there's a chromosomal abnormality. She's not going to live, but you had no idea until that morning when Jackie woke up in March. Yeah, no, no idea. <clears throat> they did um, uh, autopsy afterwards and find, find nothing wrong with her. 50% of stillbirths are a mystery to the medical profession and she's part of that 50% because that the, I think the first time I met you was at the church there in Cambridge mm -hmm. in 2016 I, it was one of the last weeks I was it must have been February and mm -hmm. I because I, I remember hearing just a few weeks later and I met you and your wife and expecting a child and yeah uh, very grieved so uh, good has come out of it the moon is always round yeah, yeah, the Lord has used our sore providence to minister to others. We still miss her greatly. We just had had our sixth anniversary of her not being with us. Yeah. If I can ask just one more question about that, because uh, as a pastor, I mean, I just think of friends and loved ones I know who have had similar situations. One of the things that maybe people could think, they would, they would know better than to ever say this, but someone might think, oh, I'm very sad, and uh, that's just terrible that that happened. But why is why is this still such a big deal? I mean, you didn't you didn't you didn't know her. You didn't spend time with her. I mean, it was very grieved. But you're acting like you lost a a child. I mean, no one would ever say that. But people could, in their dark parts of their heart think that and yet it's it's uh, I, i've known from seeing this pastorally so many times it is profound and i'm sure you can't understand it unless you go through it what what are people who haven't gone through it what what don't they understand about losing a stillborn child that feels every bit as much as losing any child yeah, I mean, each each death of a child is different. You know, early miscarriage is a mystery, and yeah. there's there we we had grace given to us that we got to meet Layla, name her, hold her. Whereas an early miscarriage, you know, parents don't even know if it was a boy mm -hmm. or a girl. Um, they don't need to get to name them, etc. So, and and then us losing Layla at nine months. You know, we we have friends who just lost a son at twenty nine years, and I, I wrote to the father when it happened a few years ago, and I said, I, I don't know what you're going through. I I couldn't only begin to imagine twenty nine years of love and bonding, mm -hmm. and then and he sadly died. So, um, you know, each uh, the way I describe it is each person's valley is their valley, and I think that's what people need to respect and be aware of that you know each person's valley is their own valley yeah. and but as far as <clears throat> a person well i think with a stillbirth you, you get to meet them you get to hold them you get to see who they look like mm -hmm. um you you carry their little body in a white coffin into church yeah. and you put that body in a grave and in that sense it gives them great dignity um and uh, we we when uh, you know on on my books you'll see it says Johnny you know I have four children mm -hmm. and Layla is one of those four yeah yeah and um, we we sort of um, you know only two people met Layla besides Jackie me Ian Hamilton and a friend dear friend of Jackie Sarah Dixon and 
nobody ever gets to meet stillborn stillborn children like you know some family might yeah but generally nobody gets to meet them and that's one of the great pains for a parent is we all love to talk about our children we love to put photos up of them on twitter facebook you know email them to people but nobody gets to see your stillborn child and that there's a great sadness in that because you you think you think i've only got three children mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i i have four children i held my That's daughter right. you know and so there's um you know doug kelly wrote to me whenever layla died he had a stillbirth um a sixth child and he wrote to me he says you have just been given the the strange stewardship of a quiet mm. grief yeah strange stewardship of a quiet grief and i've never forgotten that line and so you know i've i've friends at seminary here faculty and students and their daughter's six years old and i'll often look at their girl uh -huh. and i'll think wow layla would be running around with Run you with her yeah. the, wind, the wind in her hair today but she's not here but she would be six she'd be your height she'd you know she'd be wearing a wee dress today so it's this hidden grief that's very hard to articulate at times but it's very real and um the the encouragement i give to people is um if you know someone who's lost a stillborn child ask them their name yeah what was good. their name just to ask them their name and use their name in conversation if you're talking about the child don't just talk about the baby they lost or we're sorry for your loss you know say no we're sorry Layla died yeah uh, that's yeah. what that's what meant the most to us at the time like be personal and talk about them like they're actually a real person because they are and yeah. that's the the dignity <laughs> that they deserve as God's creation and image bearers yeah yeah. Well, thanks for letting me ask about that. And I, uh, it, it's a wonderful book. And I don't know if that metaphor is new to you or you've you heard it from some, but I, I, when I first read the book, I thought that's, this is brilliant. This is wonderful for this occasion, but for so many occasions in life where we have to explain to kids and to adults, that doesn't make sense at all. Well, that's right. Look up in the sky. You can't see the moon tonight. You see just a sliver. But it's not any less round. It's not any less brilliant than it always is. So thank you for that. Uh, I want to talk about a couple other books. We're almost out of time. But I said I was having you on here to talk about Be Thou My Vision. I have this nice leather-bound copy. This, uh, and I gave this out at our, so it came out right before Christmas. And I gave, I got, we bought copies from Crossway right as they came in and we gave it out at our staff Christmas party. We got a big staff at the church and people were so excited. And I, I got lots of texts and emails afterward saying, this is so rich. I love this. This is helping my, my devotional time in the morning. So just walk us through what is this book, Be Thou My Vision, a liturgy for daily worship. Uh, what is it? What inspired you to put this together? So it came about during 2020, during the COVID lockdowns, I was reflecting on my own quiet times as we were all sitting at home <laughs> with not much to do. And uh, I thought these are a bit bland, a bit boring. I'm being distracted. 
you know, we all struggle to read and pray every day. That's always been a struggle for me, I think, for everyone. And so I thought, is there another way I could do this to really help, um, you know, um, uh, to help and uh, enrich my quiet time? So I um, uh, thought I had a friend in Sydney who had put together a little liturgy for families and churches while they were in lockdown. And my son goes to a Reformed Episcopal Church and they do a little prayer book service mm -hmm. every morning. And I thought, why not make my quiet time a little like a church service, a mini church service, a call to worship, prayer of adoration, reading of the law, confess my sins, have an assurance of pardon, say a creed, mm -hmm. look at a catechism question, do my Bible reading, have a prayer of illumination before that prayer of intercession and some prayers of my own and then Lord's Prayer. So that's what I did. I put it together. I tried it for a week, really liked it. So let me extrapolate this out into a month. So I prepared it for a month, tried it for a month. And I find myself greatly enriched in my own quiet time, uh, spiritually fed beyond just reading a Bible passage, not thinking much about it. Um, my prayers were more expansive. I was more concentrated, less mm -hmm. distracted. And so uh, that's when I proposed it to Crossway. And I said, what do you think of this? And then here we are with this lovely addition that they've produced. And um, the, the idea is basically to just give people another way to think about how do they do their daily devotions. So I've called it a, a liturgy of daily worship. So I'm trying to give it the more vertical aspect uh, rather than just thinking of our devotions as being an edification for us. So that's why I've called it worship, a daily worship liturgy. Um, yeah, and I hope it, it's, it, I, all I can say is for, for myself, if you're allowed to talk about one of your own books like this, and it's not really my book, it's just a copy and paste job. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, if, uh, it's been a real blessing to me. I, I've not had better quiet times for a long time. Well, thank you for doing it. I mean, some of the the best books are copy and paste jobs. I mean, the the Valley of Vision, what Banner of Truth never knew they were going to have, you know, their best selling book when Arthur Bennett put together those prayers that he drew from different sources. And then uh, I know that Crossway has been really pleased with how well this is done. And so, like today, day eighteen, there's a call to worship and then a prayer of adoration. And if you just read through it all. You know, it might take eight, ten minutes, but of course the idea is to then pray your own and then go back and, and read through some scriptures. I, I love it because for years I've on and off, I've tried to use some of the, the Book of Common Prayer or the Anglican. I've gotten really nice daily office books and not growing up, you know, and I appreciate a lot of about that tradition. Of course, that's not all, that's not my tradition. And I didn't grow up with it. So some of the big books like they're very they're confusing at first to the uninitiated like me and so you're flipping back and forth all the time and what what's this it, let alone someone who hasn't been to seminary okay what's this weird latin term for this thing and then i got to go back and i'm sure if you grow up with it it all makes sense of how it all fits together but what i love about this is you're taking this a similar kind of idea of a basic template of worship that's been around for a long time for both corporate worship and private worship and family worship. And it's right, it's right here. You don't have to flip to, you don't need 18 bookmarks to figure out where you're going. There are some readings in the back to suggest going through. So it's really a wonderful resource. And, and there's a, a wonderful thing about our evangelical 
more free church tradition in that we believe in extemporaneous prayers, and, and that's really rich. And yet I think that that leads us sometimes to miss that even in the Gospels, when Jesus and the disciples were talking about prayers or they went out to sing a hymn, th- these were almost certainly very set patterns of things mm-hmm. that they did. And they had certain hymns they were going to sing, the Halal Psalms in, during the Passion Week, uh, during Passover, or they were going to have certain prayers that they did. We tend to think of it like they just all got in a circle and just popcorn prayer. Okay, you take off, I'll close. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've all prayed like that. And and there's something rich about that intimacy and extemporaneous. But I think many, many people in many churches would they wouldn't uh they don't know what they're missing by using a resource it's not like it's not that you're saying this is the only way you should ever pray is reading someone else's prayer but i think that was the 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 light bulb with the valley of vision when that came out mm-hmm. years ago wow i don't pray this well <laughs> and of course they didn't pray quite that well either because those were those were written works that people mm-hmm. had labored over uh, philip doddridge didn't just always stand up and pray like that extemporaneous. They had put a lot of thought. So you're using the riches that the saints who have gone before have put together and allowing us to then pray. And I think for a lot of Christians who've never tried to pray this way with their private or or family worship, it's really an enriching experience. And you can use this one month and keep going through it and it still stays fresh. So Thank you for this. Can I ask you about one other book before sure. uh, I, I promise I try to keep you to an hour? But this is so I, my morning devotions for the last little bit have been very Johnny Gibson eccentric. That may be a problem. <laughs> I may be the only one. Now, don't worry, I got the Bible mainly in prayer, but I always try to. So I have Be Thou My Vision on my shelf, and I also try to read some old book or a book about something old. It's sort of a five to 10 minute warm up my engine when I get going in the morning. And, and so I've been reading through, uh, I will build my church, Thomas Witherow edited by Johnny Gibson and not being a, a Northern Irishman, I confess, I didn't know anything about Thomas Witherow. So this is published by Westminster Seminary Press. And you did quite an extensive introduction. Introduction is a bit euphemistic for what you did here. It's its own book uh, in the first half of this. So just tell us about this book, I Will Build My Church, Selected Writings on Church Polity, Baptism, and the Sabbath. Why would anyone want to read an Ulsterman from the 19th century on church polity, baptism, and the Sabbath? Who was Thomas Witherow? Yeah, so Thomas Witherow is a 19th century Irish Presbyterian minister who wrote in his own historical ecclesiastical context word works that he believed were sort of necessary for the time. Uh, the first one he wrote was the Apostolic Church, which is it on Presbyterian church government. And he, he looks at church government more broadly. And he was writing in a time when the Church of Ireland was very dominant and bishops were viewed as, you know, the the right and only way to do church government. And so he wrote against that as a Presbyterian saying that he actually thought the Presbyterianism in its church polity was more biblical than the prelacy is the way he describes mm-hmm. it or episcopacy. Uh, he also critiques independency as well. And so that, that was his context there. It, it was a bestseller. So why should you read really? Thomas Withrow? It went through about four 
editions. And it was a bestseller. It got the attention of B.B. Warfield and others uh, in this on the side of this side of America, the side of the Atlantic in America. And he um, he was a, he was a very interesting writer. He he grabs your attention straight away. He's polemical, so you either like what he's saying or you don't he's like it. He's very straightforward. He's right down the middle. Yeah, there's no uh, he, he, there's no clearing his throat. Uh, no, he just uh-uh. gets gets in there and goes for it. I mean, his his opening section on um, the Apostolic Church called the Statement of the Question, where he just talks about how polity, whilst it is not essential to salvation, it is nevertheless very important. Otherwise, why would God have put so much in the scriptures about it? And he just speaks more generally about the distinction between essentials and non-essentials. And I think that's a problem in modern evangelicalism. We think non-essentials really, really don't matter. Yeah, yeah. And to the point, and then Withrow makes the point, well, if that's the case, then the vast majority of scripture is irrelevant because the salvation parts of scripture are, are not actually as extensive in some books or letters than mm-hmm. we think. And so his point is that the non-essentials are actually, while not essential to salvation, important for the health of the church. And if, if you're a Christian and you're going to go to a church, which you, you ought to be in a church, um, you're going to have to decide which kind of a church you're willing to submit to, its leadership. What kind of leadership structure are you willing to submit to? And so that's a question that we actually all need to ask. The other question is we need to ask is ourselves is if I'm going to go to a church, which kind of baptism am I willing to receive myself and also have my children receive? Is it believer's baptism or infant baptism? And that's his second book, Scriptural Baptism, which he wrote out of exigency in his time because there was a, the Ulster Revival happened in 1859 and he was seeing that all the converts, the Baptists and the Wesleyans, were trying to proselytize them and say, you need to get baptized now that you've become converted. Mm-hmm. And the, the revival took place in the Presbyterian church. So it was a lot of kids who'd been baptized as babies were growing up as adults and getting converted. And uh, they, they were being proselytized. So he wrote to say, you don't need to get baptized. You've been baptized. So that was the context there. Scriptural baptism, the parable of the city park. Have you got to that yet? Yes, that is really good. In fact, I was just thinking if there's a way I might, obviously giving credit to it, I might try to rework it. It's it's quite long, but Mm -hmm. rework it into maybe 1200 words and do a blog post or something because it's really clever. And as a Presbyterian, Mm -hmm. very compelling. Yeah, very much so. And it it leaves you laughing, you know, like even as a Presbyterian, I'm saying, you know, Withrow, have mercy on the Baptists. We we get so the point. So, give us in a nutshell what is his uh, his metaphor about the park? It's about a city park that you know a, a landlord owned and and gave access to families for generations, and then a, a family come to get access, and um, there's a new gatekeeper, <laughs> and the gatekeeper says, "You are allowed in." to the gentleman, the citizen, and his wife. He says, "But your children are not allowed in." So for generations. Parents and children were allowed access, and then a new gatekeeper decides there's a change in the structure and regime here, and it's only parents, not children. Because he's receiving some, some he's received something from the owner of the park that says, like, all friends are are granted admission here. Yes, and saying, well, I don't know that your child has any proof of friendship. 
Yes, yes. And yeah. so he he plays on the continuity of the covenant, basically. Yeah. Does a child have the right to access to the promises and to access this park? And the, and they go back and forth, the gatekeeper and the citizen. And uh, it, it, the citizen just, just keeps pressing home the point that, hang on, if, if the children previously were allowed access, why would they not be allowed access now? And sort of keeps pressing that point home and and the absurdity of not allowing them access now if they had previously had access. when it's a bigger park now it's a yeah. it's a new and improved beautiful yes. park and yes. so now our kids can't come in yeah so it i think it's very powerful and uh, it's got the great punchline at the end you know and the gatekeeper was an anabaptist <laughs> as if we yeah. didn't know as, as if, if we, we didn't know thank you for drawing the conclusion <laughs> like right okay thanks Withrow. but yeah it's very powerful but I, I think earlier in the book scripture baptism he has some very quite poignant part uh, arguments that i think baptists need to answer like where do you baptize three thousand people on the day of pentecost when there is no natural source of water in jerusalem the pool of Siloam's not big enough for them all. Right. So how did they all get baptized in one day? Uh, you know, he, he gets quite practical about full immersion. What well, you know? Right. So that that's his second book. The third book is on the Sabbath, uh, where he gives a strong argument for the continuity of the Sabbath with modification. You know, it's not no longer mosaic. It's now Christian. The focus is on worship and rest. Uh, whereas in the Old Testament, it was more on rest as well as worship, but rest was the big thing. And um, yeah, it's a really good, I think, articulate view of the continuity of the Sabbath. We can all have our different views of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, but I wanted to put it in there as the right. general principle of the Lord's Day is still in effect. And it's now the first day of the week and it will remain a sign of the Sabbath has to be still in effect because a Sabbath still awaits the people of God, Hebrews 4. And it doesn't make much sense for there not to be a sign of that future rest if there was a sign for it in the Old Covenant. So, you know, some of the evangelical circles in the UK, mainly in the Anglican uh, circles with the influence from Sydney Anglicanism will talk about every day is the Lord's Day. Jesus came to bring the rest. He brought the rest. Every day is the Lord's Day. But that's really over-realized eschatology. Uh, if there yet remains a Sabbath for the people of God, Hebrews 4, then there has to yet remain a sign of that Sabbath for the people of God. And that, that sign is the Lord's Day. So that's Withrow's point. Yeah. Yes. It, it would be strange to so emphasize that point in Hebrews with the conclusion being, therefore, there is no sign. I mean, it's sort of like uh, Jesus having the little children come to him. Of course, that's not a passage about infant baptism per se, but he says, to such belong the kingdom. It'd be strange for Jesus to really be saying, well, to people like children belong the kingdom, but obviously not literally children belong the kingdom. No, he, he took them in his arms. He gave them a blessing which would have to everyone had obvious covenant overtones and says to these like this, but also to these very little ones I hold in my arms belongs the kingdom. They have entrance into the park as it were. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
I will build my church, and you did a, a great introduction to Witherow, and there's pictures, and it's just really nicely done here by Westminster Seminary Press, and Be Thou My Vision by Crossway, and then we talked about the uh, the kids' book and your massive work with your brother on the five points of Calvinism. So keep up all the good stuff that you're doing, and blessings on your work at Westminster. Perhaps I'll see you in the in the next couple of days as we both head to Mecca, a.k.a. Louisville, for... <laughs> Uh, as I said to you earlier, there's like 10, 11 plenary sermons. So, you know, you, you have to get, there has to be one or two. I mean, Sinclair's there. So you're going to, you know, yeah. something's going to be good yeah. and worthwhile. Yeah. So, Well, Kevin, thanks very much for having me on. It's been good to talk to you as always. Yeah, grateful. So uh, thank you all for listening, for watching wherever you are. And until next time, glorify God, enjoy him forever and read a good book. Mm-hmm.